Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here, as always, with my amazing (laughs) co-host, Ellen McGirt. I never get tired of that, Alan. Thank you for that. I'm very excited about our next guest, Al Kelly, the CEO of Visa. And we talked about the economy, income inequality, the impact of the coronavirus around the world, and also the impact of the virus on him. Turns out he had gotten sick. So that's where we start. Luckily, my oxygen levels stayed at a good level. And really, I would describe it, Ellen, as uh, the worst and longest bad flu I've ever had. Uh, So I was kind of down and out for about two and a half weeks. I've um, been very vigilant in talking to our employees about how contagious and deadly this virus is. Since the beginning of the pandemic, I've done a video every week on Thursday evenings, I record it that goes out globally. And I would say that every other video, I probably remind employees about making sure they're doing all the basic things because the sooner we get out of this together, it really is uh, a situation where the whole world needs to unite. And I'm certainly trying to get our 21,000 employees to be part of that world that is behaving in the best possible way so that we can get this pandemic on the other side of us as quickly as possible. Al, the the pandemic was clearly a blow to your business in the short term. People weren't out using their credit cards to travel, to go to restaurants, et cetera. But the stock market seems to think it's going to be good for your business in the longer term, accelerating the move to digital commerce. Do you agree with that? I do, Alan. I think that you are correct. At the In the first 30, 40 days when uh, people went into lockdown from mid March of 20 to say towards the end of uh, middle to end of April. There's no question every category was impacted and we saw our volumes drop like a rock. But then what clearly happened was e-commerce grew tremendously around the world in categories where you never saw it before. So food and drug was the kind of thing people would go to pharmacies and go to supermarkets for. And people were ordering online and having things delivered to their house. Sometimes they were ordering online and picking up at the store. People got into a whole bunch of new habits, and that rise in digital or e-commerce volume is tremendous for us because cash and check is no longer an option in that world. And the reality is that today, 15 cents of every dollar in the face-to-face world will be spent on a Visa card. But in the e-commerce digital world, it's more like 43 cents of every dollar will be on a Visa card. Wow. Where we continued to get hurt and saw uh, very depressed volumes and still see fairly depressed volumes, although there are a few green shoots, is in travel and entertainment. Those categories, which really require lots of crowding, any business model that requires heavy density has really found themselves in challenging times. So whether it's Broadway or a movie theater or a fitness center or an airplane, All of those types of industries have been hit very hard. And in particular, the travel industry, where still today, Alan, over 150 countries have travel restrictions, making it very difficult for even an adventurous person who's been vaccinated, who says, I want to get on the road. Even then, there are limitations to where they can go. Yeah. 
Yeah, but it's coming. It's coming. I booked my first trip. That is why I'm saying that. I'm, I, I'll be <laughs> fully vaccinated and heading out uh, in about two weeks. So, uh, but jealous. do you think do you think cash and, and checks are going away? I mean, how much has the acceleration toward alternative payment happened during the pandemic? I certainly think that uh, cash and check will be with us for some time, but I do think their usage will decline at an accelerated rate because of the pandemic. Al, every time we talk, you remind me that Visa may be a global company, but you have a big footprint in some smaller communities. And I'm curious how you are tracking what's happening with some of the small businesses, particularly some of the mom and pops, particularly coming from communities who were already economically vulnerable and probably likely to be more so coming out of the pandemic. What are you seeing there and and what should we be thinking about? Ellen, this has been a very tough time for small business owners. If they did not have an ability to sell in an e-commerce world, they either didn't have a website or they had a poor website or they didn't have the ability to have people order online and pick up at their store. It's really been a very troubling time. And unfortunately, there's been a tremendous amount of small businesses that have closed and a lot of them permanently, which is extremely concerning. Small businesses have been one of the losers in this pandemic. And we at Visa think that's a real problem and something we're very focused on. We've always been extremely focused on small businesses. We think they're an engine of growth. They also lift up communities, especially in in some of the poorer parts of the world, And heavily women-owned firms, they employ other women. And as that business grows, the entire family prospers. So we remain very, very committed to uh, small businesses. And we've made a commitment to help digitize 50 million small businesses over the next three years because that's their key to survival is that they have to be much more digitally enabled than they have been in the past. And their pathway to that has to get accelerated. So it's something we're spending a lot of time uh, thinking about. Al, can we talk about Bitcoin, please? Uh, (laughs) It it has been a wild thing to watch up and up and up. What does that mean to your business? I know you've been doing some stuff in the area of cryptocurrency, but explain what that means to the credit card business. So, Alan, I'd like to divide crypto into two buckets. One is the more speculative asset, which I would put Bitcoin in that category, kind of the digital gold, if you will. And in that category, we're trying to do two things. One is enable the purchase of Bitcoin on Visa credentials. And then secondly, working with some Bitcoin wallets to allow the Bitcoin to be translated into a fiat currency and therefore immediately be able to be used at any of the 70 million places around the world where Visa is accepted. The other category of crypto are digital currencies. There we see a strong potential for those to become a new payment vehicle. In fact, it could be an accelerant in in some of the emerging markets as we look around the world. So certainly in the digital currency world, we're working with lots of players. There's about 35 different players we're working with. These are currencies that are fiat-backed. But again, we're allowing that, that translation, if you will, into a fiat currency and in a wallet where there's a Visa card. And again, that Visa card can be used with the translated digital currency over to the fiat currency to purchase at any one of our 70 million locations. 
Are, are we getting into an innovator's dilemma situation for Visa there? I mean, the idea about digital currencies was that they would lower the cost of transactions. We wouldn't have to pay as much to Visa and MasterCard for the transaction as we do today. So by you embracing it and experimenting with it, are you helping to pave the way to a future where the toll you take on transactions is smaller than it is today? You know, the, the thing about our business, Alan, that, that I actually like is we don't pick winners and losers. You know, as you and I sit here and talk today, I don't know what to, do, to what degree cryptocurrencies are going to take off. Are we going to say in five years that it, it was a fad and it wasn't a big deal or is it going to be extremely mainstream? I'm not smart enough to know, but what I am smart enough to do is make sure that our company is in the middle of it today so that if it takes off, we're in the middle of uh, helping move that money. We used to be a business that was all about people using our products for buying and selling goods and services. Today, we've made the company a company that's all about money movement globally. So any kind of funds that are going to flow, we want to be in the middle of that. And if Mm -hmm. it takes off and uh, we can get our fair share or more of of the volume because we anticipated that this possibly could take off and become a big deal, we certainly want to be prepared for that, and, and I think we're off to a very good start. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is CEO of Deloitte U.S., and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us, and thanks for your support of our second season. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Over the last decade, we've seen more and more CEOs speaking out on social issues, issues like gun control, gay rights, racial justice. But that really reached a peak in 2020 with the outpouring of business commentary on the George Floyd killing, and then again in January when the mob stormed the Capitol. What's going on here? Well, the last number of months have clearly been a test, and I hope there's a general consensus that business has passed. You know, there have been so many moments over the past number of months where we in business have demonstrated not just the willingness, but the imperative to speak out for what we believe in, to call out improper conduct and help drive change in society. Our people expect that. Our clients expect that. I think this is at the core of what we talk about in terms of stakeholder capitalism. I also think, Alan, that there's a growing realization that if we as business leaders don't speak out, who will? Business is arguably the last trusted institution in society. Trust in business has actually gone up during the pandemic. And as a result, we have a responsibility to help lead our people through these really difficult events. You have a responsibility, Joe, but you also have a risk. How do you balance that? I have consistently seen that in making that calculation, business leaders have come to the conclusion that the risk of not speaking out is greater than the risk of speaking up. Will you get 100% alignment around the message? No, but the risk to the goodwill of your people, to the allegiance of your customers is actually greater if you're unwilling to share what you as an organization stand for. And that is more important than the potential that some percentage will not be aligned with the message that you're sharing. Joe, thank you. The last time we caught up, we spent quite a bit of time talking about your personal commitment to 
inclusion and racial justice and how that translated into work at Visa. And Visa has been very public about supporting, for example, NFL and their players and teams, Black Lives Matter and related grants and mentorship for Black women-owned businesses. We're talking about your interest in the small businesses earlier. I'm curious about the fruits of that work. What have you seen taking root at Visa and how do you see that work progressing going forward? We've been doing a tremendous amount in the area of diversity and inclusion for a number of years. But if I'm honest, it was a set of activities where we were very well-intentioned and making some progress. But I think we fell short of it being a real business imperative. And the big change in the last year for us is that diversity and inclusion has moved from being an important set of activities to a real business imperative. What does that mean? That means we have set specific goals. That means we have put measurement mechanisms in place. That means it's going to be part of how we evaluate executives in terms of compensation. It means that we are going to have business reviews on where we are on DNI, just as much as I would review how is our business doing in Europe. I'm going to have a business review on how we're doing in terms of diversity and inclusion. And we've set a couple of very aggressive goals. We have said that we're going to increase the number of vice presidents and above by 30% over the next three years in the United States for underrepresented minorities. And we're going to increase our total representation in the United States for underrepresented minorities by 50% in five years. And I think they're aggressive goals. And my management team debated the fact that we were setting these goals during the pandemic or at the beginning of the pandemic, where clearly we were hiring less people. So we were introducing some risk right at the get-go in terms of setting these goals. But it was the right thing to do and the right time to do it. I really do hope, Ellen, and I think history will determine whether this is true, that 2020 may have been an inflection point in the United States where our tolerance for racial injustice has reached its breaking point. And it is time for real change where everybody is accepted on equal footing with no questions asked. I know as I talk to uh, senior leaders about new initiatives or bold initiatives around race and inclusion, there's a lot of talking, there's a lot of explaining, there's a lot of listening that has to happen. H- how much time are you personally spending on this? You ask a very good question. I-, I believe when you have challenging issues, no matter what they are, there's nothing more powerful than dialogue. I happen to be by nature and in terms of leadership style, a very collaborative person. I, I want to hear different points of view. I've had just tremendous support from our underrepresented minorities, many of whom have told me lots and lots of stories about their experiences. And frankly, I didn't realize the extent of uh, discrimination and how deep it goes. I don't think I've talked to a single black employee who has not faced discrimination multiple times, sometimes somewhat subtle, like getting on the elevator and the person turns away uh, or clutches their bag or purse a little tighter, or you're a black person walking down the street and and somebody approaching you walks to the other side of the street or a security guard in a store seems to be paying particular attention to you as you shop. And obviously we've seen uh, less subtle discrimination and then we've seen actual murder. And it's just is plain and simple outrageous. And 
we've instituted a series that we call race talks in the company. And we've had both internal as well as external people come and talk. And we, we're getting a couple of thousand employees signing up for each one of these race talks. So there's wow. a lot of interest in the subject. We have a lot of young employees over somewhere around 53% of our employees are millennials. And boy, do I believe in that generation. And I think they're, they're the generation that could really help us crack the code here. And they, the white men and women in that group want to be allies. They want to be there and they want to, they want to help their uh, fellow employees who are underrepresented. And I find it incredibly inspiring. I don't know exactly how much time I spend, but I will tell you as the CEO, I think my number one duty is talent and my and the people in the company. So I probably spend a, a third to 40% of my time on talent-related issues. And obviously, uh, diversity and inclusion is an extremely important yeah. p- part of that. Yeah, so interesting. You know, and, and it's not, our, our listeners should know, it's not only diversity and inclusion and racial justice where you've been spending time, but you've also been doing a lot uh, in the environmental area on sustainability. Can you tell us about that? We are. You know, we're, Alan, we're not a manufacturing company who's has this tremendous fossil fuel issue, but I think people don't really understand a lot of cases what Visa is. We're a, we're a huge technology company. Uh, we have huge data centers around the world. We're, we're in many ways, uh, we're the, the I, I don't like the word utility, but we're kind of the utility behind commerce globally. And uh, one of the things we set out to do is to get to all the electricity in our in our big data centers around the world to be 100% renewable. And we reached that goal in the last six months. And uh, we actually did a, a green bond of half a billion dollars re- recently in our most recent debt raising. Uh, we are increasingly working on what we call urban mobility around the world to enable m- more people to be on public transportation in big cities. So even though we're a small company and we're not a manufacturing company, it's it's something that resonates as part of our purpose with our employees in a huge way and personally for our, our leadership team. Yeah, it's important to your employees. It's important to your team. But can we talk about you for a minute? I know you're a very active Catholic participant in, in Catholic activities. Do you think that has an effect on the way you see your responsibilities as a as a CEO? Look, I think we're all, to some degree, influenced by our upbringing. Um, the oldest of seven children, I learned responsibility very quickly trying to help my mother, you know, when she had five kids under seven years old and in the household, my two brothers and I had a paper out for six years and uh, delivered newspapers. And that was a way we made a little bit of money. And my parents were, were quite devout Catholics and sent us to a Catholic grammar school. And, you know, I did the whole routine of, I was an altar server and uh, did readings at mass and things like that. And and since then, I've been extremely involved in in the Catholic church and, and Catholic education, because in many cases, they're doing a lot of great things for the, the disadvantaged, the underprivileged, the poor. And I feel based on my upbringing and the fact that I've been blessed in this world that uh, a, a big part of my personal obligation is to give back. And uh, my wife and my focus is is heavily on the Catholic Church, but also in the area of healthcare. 
and I'm on the board of a, a, a fantastic hospital, New York Presbyterian, and I see the the magic of these doctors and and nurses and uh, the advances in healthcare. And although those things, you know, personally fascinate me, but they they give me a, a great sense of fulfillment. And that's what drives my passion for giving back. I want to follow up on the faith uh, subject a bit. We talk a lot about inclusion at work, and we have lots and lots of employee resource groups, but faith and conversations around faith and what motivates us and all of that, how it links to our purpose and our activities, tends not to be talked about much in corporate spaces. I, I think faith gives you something to fall back on. It can ground you, uh, which is also important. I know in tough times, my faith is very, very important to me. But I would never want to get preachy about it. I talk at Visa about I want our employees to live a well-rounded life. That if Visa's all that matters in your life, you're never going to be that great an employee. I want people who are who are who are thinking about and spending time with their family, friends. They're worried about their wellness. They spend time on their faith and they spend time at work. And if you have that well-rounded, balanced life, I'm convinced that we'll have the best of you when your mind is on, on Visa. This has been such an interesting and wide-ranging conversation. I wonder if I could ask you to cast forward now. I, I mean, we've seen this incredible acceleration of technology during the pandemic. We've seen this acceleration or this rethinking of business's role in society. What do you hope will last? You know, what do you hope a year from now we can look back and say, this is better because of that horrible experience we went through? Well, look, I, I think we have proven that all of us as human beings and organizations are adaptable. We, we have found new ways to make things happen. I believe that some of this well-rounded type of person we're talking about can actually happen through more flexible work arrangements. I, I think that employees are going to demand more flexibility. I think we as employers have to prov provide that flexibility. I, I think the emergence and the acceleration of e-commerce is critical. Mm -hmm. I actually think that that emergence is going is waking governments up to the fact that if they're not working in public-private partnership, the people left behind are going to be further left behind. Because yep. in e-commerce, you have to have two basic things. One is you have to have a piece of equipment that allows you into the internet. And then you have to have access to broadband Wi-Fi in order to participate. And let's face it, even in the big cities, in New York City, there's an estimate that 2 million people don't have access to broadband uh, Wi-Fi. That's really problematic. We've got to fix that. So I think the fact that there's more dialogue about that than there was prior to the pandemic is a, is a very, very important thing. And I think we've also proven that when science gets united beyond something that's really important, they can get done in, in months, what in prior times might have taken years. So I think that there's a, an awful lot of things that are going to come out of this that will be positive on a, on a big picture level. And on a smaller level, I think that we've, you know, from a business perspective, I now realize that sending Alan Murray to do a two-hour presentation in, in Singapore 
was probably foolish. And uh, and I did that in 2019, by the way. I just want to, <laughs> I don't know how you picked that, but. <laughs> and so did I, Alan. But I think we're going to be, I think as employers, we're going to be more judicious about yeah. when is a business trip necessary and when is it not. The reality is that we're in a world where we certainly can do much more virtually than have to do everything in a face-to-face situation. A great, uh, a great look at the future. I hope you're right about all of it. Al, thank you so much for being with us on Leadership Next. Alan, thank you. Alan, thank you. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes.